Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. I'm Lucian Hudson, the Director of Communications. Very, very pleased to see you. Uh, we can only apologise for the bad weather, but I hear from some tables how relieved you were to find that uh, uh, there were covered walkways. So, yes, we're innovative, still innovative. Um, this is a little setting the scene of where we are now and how that compares maybe to when you were here. Um, how we have all grown. Um, can I just ask, before I go any further, for whom is this your very first visit to this campus? Raise your hands. Look at that. <laughs> hands down. Overwhelming majority. Who has been here at least once before? And who comes here regularly? Um, so, looking back in time, what's happened in the world since that magic year, those magic years of 72, 73? What was happening um, all that time ago? Well, in 72, we had the first handheld scientific calculator being launched. Um, we had development of the space shuttle. We had the miners' strike. Anyone remember that? Even I remember that. Um, Atari launched the first arcade game. And we had the first episode of Emmerdale Farm. <laughs> In 1973, the UK entered the European Economic Community. Queen Elizabeth opened London Bridge. The Watergate scandal dominated the news. We all remember that, don't we? Pink Floyd <laughs> released Dark Side of the Moon. Roger Moore played James Bond in Live and Let Die. I always ask this. Hands up if you're a Roger Moore fan or in James Bond. Right. Uh, oh, oh. Sean Connery. Yes. Anybody else? Oh, all right. <laughs> I won't be controversial. Also in 73, we had the OU first graduation ceremony. And most importantly, that's when you started studying with the OU. Without you taking the chance with something that was very new, we wouldn't be here where we are today. We try to walk in your shoes. <laughs> the OU now is the largest academic institution in the UK in terms of student numbers. 1.8 million people have studied with the OU. 1.8 million. Now over 31,000 of our students are under 25. The average age of a student, you might like to know, then, was 36. What do you think it is now? Very good, whoever said 32. It is actually 30. It hasn't fallen much, but the proportion of under-25s has, of course, risen considerably. The bigger difference is the proportion of men to women. Then, it was 69% men, 31% women. What do you think it's now? Hmm? Yeah, absolutely right. It's roughly 50-50 now. There's been a dramatic increase in the number of courses, and we now have 650 on offer. 
um, ranging from introductory courses to, of course, postgraduate studies. In 1973, we had only one ceremony at the Ali Pali, Alexandra Palace. In 1974, we had six degree ceremonies. Now, we have, every year, 25 taking place in the UK, Republic of Ireland, France, as well as much further field. Um, do you remember this? <laughs> Recent series include the science program Bang Goes the Theory, the long-running Coast, Frozen Planet. You all know we've done Frozen Planet? Great. Which reached 44% of adults, so very big hit for the BBC, very big hit for us, the Open University, and Wartime Farm. Wartime Farm. That partnership of the BBC has been critical. That's been 42 years of a partnership between us and the BBC, still going very, very strong. 100 million views of OU programmes through the BBC annually. Again, just looking back, the 1970s postal strike made it difficult to get course materials to students. These days, students can get their learning courses from almost anywhere. You might recognise these, Open Learn, iTunes U, YouTube, and FutureLearn. Have any of you have heard of FutureLearn? Well, that's impressive. I, I, my performance is being measured on how much you see, any of you recognise it. So hands up if you know about FutureLearn. There goes my bonus, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's new. Uh, we only launched it uh, two weeks ago. Um, but, um, <laughs> covering my tracks, and I will say a little bit more about it. Um, fact about OpenLearn, um, 300,000 uh, visitors a month, 28 million visitors since launch. Look at 650 study units, interactive videos, academic blogs, and follow-up on OU and BBC television programs. iTunes U, new entrepreneurs in the top 10 of iTunes U. Uh, iTunes U courses. Uh, Beginner's French is number two in the top iTunes U collection. Um, 16 million iTunes U downloads. Um, isn't that a phenomenal number? Um, YouTube, we have our dedicated channel offering what we call bite-sized learning and information about the OU. 65% um, of all those viewers are from outside the UK. So on future though, um, it's worth, worth mentioning just um, how this came about. Um, there's something now called MOOCs. I don't know if you've heard of MOOCs, Massive Open Online Courses. Hands up if you've heard of a MOOC. Well, that's good. And basically, um, over about two years ago, this really got going. Um, and it's a way of accessing much shorter courses, but not in a university context. A um, number of universities now are supporting the development of MOOCs, and the OU is not no exception. Under the leadership of our Vice-Chancellor, Martin Bean, we are leading the sector and bringing together now 21 universities in the UK, including our, uh, the Open University itself, um, and other universities and other partners to have our very first MOOC platform called FutureLearn. This is very exciting for us 
because it means that whatever the OU is doing, we're creating a new platform that learners can access to get a range of these smaller uh, courses. And they can access them as learners. So they don't have to be, they're not students, they're learners. And why are we doing this? Well, we're doing it partly because the technology allows us to do it, but also we don't want to just, I don't know if any Americans are here, we don't want just the Americans alone to think they can do it. So we here in the UK want to make sure that we make available to our learners that sort of quality education. So if that's the way ahead, then we want to be there at the outset and not at the end. And we got all this support from other universities across the UK because they too believe that the OU has done such a good job being innovative in education, they want to work with us because of our expertise in learning. So that's a very important development. And Martin there, two weeks ago, was doing a press conference with David Willits, the university's minister, and Simon Nelson, the chief executive of FutureLearn, and we got a lot of interest in the media in terms of uh, our plans for this. And we've announced many courses already. So just thought you should know how much we've done um, in, in the, uh, uh, over this time. To give you an idea of, this, of the size of the challenge, in our first year, I think we got 25,000 registered students. With FutureLearn, which is this platform that the OU both owns and contributes to as a partner, we got, within the first eight hours, 25,000 registrations. Right? So you can see why we're doing it. We're doing it because it's in our, in our mission, but also commercially, we cannot afford not to try this out. Um, did you use any of these? <laughs> and now... So we had the early computer, microscope, a music course record. Um, all these help make the OU different now. Um, the virtual microscope and digital portable course materials. This year saw the launch of OU Anywhere, a multiple platform application that enables undergraduate students to access study materials through their smartphones or tablets. So you'll always find me walking around with one of these. It never leaves my sight. Uh, I can also access on my phone. That never leaves my sight. So as you can see, these are important ways in which people access their materials. Work is continuing on the platform, and postgraduate study should be available via the app by 2014. How many of you use one of these, an iPhone or a tablet, just as a matter of interest? Look at that number of hands. That's quite a number. And who doesn't use them at all? Okay, still no. And who of you are not using them, but you think, oh, I might just get around to using them, particularly if it's a present given at Christmas or whatever? <laughs> okay, all right. Well, um, it, it is becoming more used, and we have to make sure it's not because we favour one technology against the other. You must realise that. It's because the OU has always used the latest technology and has never thought that the technology itself is important. It's what you can do with it. So I, you got a yes there, didn't I? So I think, and if you remember, hopefully, 
That stays our mission. Open to people, places, methods and ideas. Um, Our mission, the four opens, was first stated. Can anyone hazard a guess as to who first uttered those words? Uh, All very good. It was actually Walter Perry, our first vice-chancellor. So latterly, of course, um, Baron Perry of Walton. But yes, very much along those lines. And of course, Harold Wilson, we're celebrating this year because of 50 years of his speech when he was leader of the opposition, when he developed the concept of University of the Air. And you're absolutely right. Jenny Lee has a very key place in the university's history. So important, of course, that one of our buildings, of course, is the Jenny Lee building. But it was Walter Perry who came up with that, um, that, 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 that way to explain our mission. And that remains true today. Um, so I just want to go through briefly why these things are still important. So I've given you all the things that have changed, but I want to emphasize here the things that stay constant. Open to people. Um, this picture here shows Karina Murray uh, uh, graduating. Um, she has a combination of painful conditions. Um, uh, and she says, here, I went from walking 10 to 15 miles a day with my dog to having to give up work and being confined to bed um, or my wheelchair. Um, Karina says, I'll never forget the day my first course materials arrived. The OU has continually adapted the amount and type of support provided. She says, it's been a lifesaver. Um, nearly 18,000, I think that number is now growing, um, OU students have disabilities. The OU provides assistive technologies, alternative formats for course material, assistance at day in residential schools, and flexibility in assignments and home exams. And Karina received a Disabled Students Allowance Award, which paid for a helper and a special voice recognition software so she can study in bed. Uh, another good example here shows uh, Jagjit Kaur, who's here with Martin. And Jagjit is an OU opening student. Uh, Jagjit wanted to work with children, but was very nervous about studying. Opening modules um, built, uh, build confidence and study skills. The access to success route meant that Jagjit could try out university-level study without any financial pressure. Uh, 67,000 of our current students receive some financial assistance. And Jagjit has continued his studies and plans to become a primary school teacher. I um, don't know if you can read the quote there, but um, Jagjit says, I've become a lot more sociable, engaged uh, in a lot more voluntary activities. Um, I'm interacting with children outside of school and helping them with their own schoolwork as well. Seeing your own children progress in life makes you want to follow your own dreams. Um, Open to people. Um, This is Caroline Stevens. Caroline went from working in a community pharmacy to an acting chief executive officer, thanks to the OU. Studying the OU's MBA gave her the skills and confidence to move up the career ladder to move into the charity sector, which she is passionate about. Nowadays, 71% of our students combine work and study. 
showing real dedication and the desire to learn and continue to learn throughout their working lives and beyond. Caroline says, it transformed every aspect of my working life, really. I changed direction from hospitals into charity work, and then I was promoted within the charity sector as well. So each promotion was because of the developments that had come out of my MBA. It transformed me so that I felt confident to be in a more strategic role. And I find this when I go to degree ceremonies, one of the favourite things I do, and I go to about seven or eight every year, just to get the sense of people of how much the OU has made a difference to their lives, often building confidence off the back of the study. We're in the top five universities for satisfaction. Studying opens your mind, says one teacher. Uh, my whole life has changed, says another person. It's a great way to study, and I'm sure I'm addicted to learning now. You have helped us become who we are today. This is something you'll like. You may have seen um, uh, an awareness and what we call an awareness and cam um, perception campaign that we've run between our marketing teams and communications teams to tell even more people about the OU, featuring our most recent graduates. As you travel around regionally and nationally, um, you might have seen promotional materials at train stations, taxis, and sides of buses. Big difference here. When I came in two and a half years, I thought we're a great university, but more people need to know about us. I also thought that rather than just talk about ourselves, let us get the people who've studied with us to talk about their experience. This is concrete evidence of that working. We asked some of our new graduates to describe what the OU means to them in three words. And here are some of the most popular. Best thing ever. Scary, challenging, awesome. Well worth it. You might have some suggestions. If the mics are ready from Mark and Derek, how would you describe... In three words, your experience of being with the OU. A little thought. Roving. Right, get stuck in, Derek. Go to that table over there. Just over there. Us. And who wants to volunteer? Any hands up? Yes, oh, one here. Great. A marvellous opportunity. Marvellous opportunity. A marvellous opportunity. Lovely. Any others? Yes, one here opened my eyes brilliant open my eyes one over here it transformed my understanding of mathematics <laughs> uh, great um, <laughs> I'll come back and it's really important uh, next one yes oh there's one down here in front? Any more volunteers? At the back there, any... any who wants to share their, their words of their experience? Yes, one over there, gentlemen. I believe, sir, you're from Bolton, aren't you? Yeah, there you are. <laughs> I proved myself. Excellent. Very good. Um, 
Anybody else? Yes, one over there, gentleman with a blue tie. Yeah. Sorry, say that again. Worth the cost. Okay, brilliant. Yes? Progression and achievement. Excellent. Um, there's another one coming through now, thick and fast. Rising salary. Rising salary. Okay, let's just pause, and I really appreciate this moment. Can we go back to you, sir? Um, can you just describe what you mean by that? Uh, it was an immediate uh, back payment of £600 and then increase, because at that time... Uh, a graduate was paid at a differential rate to uh, yeah. an ordinary qualified person. Yeah. And uh, it gave me an immediate rise, so the family had a great big holiday at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, very good. Anyone else wants to chip in before I move on? Yes, lady in a very sophisticated green um, cardigan. Joy in learning. Yes. You enjoyed it then? Do you want to say a little bit more how or why you enjoyed it? It gave me a love of learning for the rest of my life. Really. Oh, fantastic. I sort of felt I never wanted to stop after that. <laughs> That's very interesting. A show of hands of anyone who continued studying after their time here in 72, 73. Yeah, look at those hands. Yeah, keep them up. Wow. That's interesting. Do you mind if I just ask one or two questions around that? Um, Derek, do you want to come down this way? Does anyone want to just explain why they went on to study more? I would be, we'd be very interested. Yeah? Yeah? Uh, who, any, any, any one of you? Yeah, I got the degree with um, educational management courses, yeah. reading diplomas, master's degree yes. over a period of time. Fantastic. And you enjoyed it all? And stuck with the OU? Uh, they're all the OU apart from the master's degree. Yes. I don't think the OU was doing them at that time. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, one here, yes. I did various things, but the study was uh, counselling with relate marriage guidance, as it was then. Right. And now I'm doing French. So Very not good. Not through the OU. Not through the <laughs> OU. No, no. Well, don't, that's wonderful. Maybe one at the back. Anyone else study, carry on studying at OU? I'd be very interested in the experience. I, the reason I ask this, I've got a very good reason. It's more important than ever now that we encourage not only to recruit students for the right reasons, but we get them to complete uh, and, and, and develop their studies. So it's quite important for us that people persist. Yes, madam. I'm not a madam, actually. I'm a, I'm oh, so madam. sorry. My apologies. But uh, uh, I, just... I, I can understand where you're going. But, no, no, um, uh, short sighted. My apologies. Sir. I actually found the Open University uh, enabled me to, to inquire more in more detail. Now, I was fairly religious, actually, at one stage, and I started to question all sorts of things. I questioned the Bible. I questioned uh, all sorts of um, things I was brought up at Sunday school, and I needed to travel uh, south of France, uh, go to Greece, go to uh, all, all over the, where the Christian um, took place, and I've got and formed an idea now um, for instance, when you hear that uh, Jesus Christ survived for 40 days, then you've got to then ask the reason what sort of survival. And I've read so many books now that I've formed uh, my own idea of what is in what we call God. And that's because the Open University opened my eyes and made me, uh, not made me, but directed me into more uh, reading uh, uh, and inquiry. 
Very good. So we heard that theme before, didn't we, of open eyes? Well, thank you. Is there anyone who thinks that um, we, in all those contributions, something's been missed in terms of any words that would describe your experience of the OU? Yes, sir. I mean, to, to, just wait till the mic gets to you, sir, because right. others can hear you better. I did science and technology courses with the OU and continue to degree standard as I expected. And I found in the work I was doing in industry, which are training other people, was greatly benefited from the OU studies and the OU approach, which I shamelessly adopted, I'm happy to say. Very good. And I helped, I believe, I helped a lot of people to understand basic electronics at least. So that was my point of view. Thank you very much. A very good point, of course, because uh, um, our work is really important to employers now. Uh, if 70% of our students work and study, it's really important that we make sure that employers can see the value of an OU education, but equally that our students can see the value, if they so wish, of using what they learn here to improve their job and career prospects. And that too. <laughs> that too. Okay, I, I know you want to show more hands, but I need to introduce next speaker. I'll just take two more because I'm a courteous chap. One there and one over yes, there. Just a quick one. Yeah. Um, after the degree, I then went on and I was funded to do it on to teacher training, you know, for yeah. a certad. And yeah. that was valuable. Very good. Thank you. And Sorry. just one more there, sir, if um, the mic gets to you safely without it being plunged up your... here who's done electronics. The patience and perseverance uh, aspect of the course. Yes. I think, uh, sometimes it broke down and uh, we yeah. had to struggle for the <laughs> together. Okay. You. Give you all, yourselves all a big round of applause. We just have a simple message to you today. Uh, the Vice-Chancellor, Martin Bean, Edith Prak, who we'll hear from later, the Director of Development, and myself. You are our pioneers, our most loyal ambassadors. Please continue to spread the word. I know, we know how much you value, how much you might actually love the OU. But we are in a commercial uh, landscape now, and it does help for word to get out and about that we're not just a top university, but a top university that's inclusive, a top university that's making a difference. There's no other university, in my view, that can claim all those things. So, thank you very much for, for hearing me. I'm just about now to introduce the next speaker. Thank you. I'd like now to introduce you to Donald Burroughs, a professor of music at the Open University. Donald has his own place in history as the first person to have completed a PhD in the music department here. Donald received due recognition on completing 25 years as a member of staff, but feels that his real achievement has been as a tutor or course director for 56 weeks of summer schools for all music courses. Donald Burroughs has conducted concerts in the USA, in Germany, in Britain, and his main research interest uh, is in the music of George Frederick Handel. He is currently director of the Handel Documents Project based in the OU's regional office in Camden and London. A big round of applause, please, for Donald. Thank you. 
It's not true that we always use the latest te technology. Um, I won't tell you the reason, but it's just uh, useful uh, for this present moment. Um, when I was thinking about this occasion, uh, I wanted really to talk to you about research because you've been aware of your own student progress, as it were, but it seems to me there are two sort of cogwheels going round in the university, which is the students' learning and the staff learning. And research, there is this business, this sort of uh, um, statement that's always made about uh, research and uh, teaching. If you want to be a um, quality place, you must have both going on. And I think probably you don't really see very much of what's happening with research. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about what we might call my research journey, rather grand phrase. This is not for my um, aggrandizement. I might be moving into my um, anecdotage or something. Um, but actually, it's just to show you the sort of thing that happens. You go to places and you do things that you really could not expect. And in that sense, I think it's rather um, parallel to some of the things uh, that we've heard in the last um, five or ten minutes. Um, the business of... Research, I'm in the uh, music area and I basically do two things in terms of research or rather there are two ways that you see it. I write notes, dots and lines and I write words and I like to keep both, half of the, both halves of the brain going. So therefore, um, if you wanted to find out you know, what I did with my research, the, the outcome this massive project that we've got on at the moment, um, the um, Collected Documents Project, is to collect all the documents about Handel from his lifetime. Um, this is something that um, is known in a book that came out in 1955. Handel is one of those composers um, that everyone wrote about at the time. And the sources of information newspapers, letters, goodness knows what. Um, it's very, very large. This is the book from 1955, as you can see by the state of it now. Uh, it's very heavily used. It's, it's about a 1,000 pages. We are now running to five volumes of the same size. Um, absolutely massive task. And so on the one hand, there are things written about Handel, things that he wrote, uh, things from his lifetime. And that, the, the first volume of that will be coming out at the end of this year. Um, and at the same time, I'll have a music edition of one of the works of Handel, uh, which should also be out around the end of this year. So, as I say, I like to keep the two. And what I want to talk about, really, is the way that doing things about documents, information, history, and doing things about uh, uh, the actual uh, music have interacted um, over this research period. I, as, as you heard, was the first um, PhD in the music um, department and at that stage could not have foreseen what a large part the OU would play in my life or where it would go. You finish your um, PhD just as you finish anything else and you think, what's next? Has the well run dry? Where do I go next? 
And I think that, that when one gets into a, a job where teaching and research are both part of it, um, you then sort of think out, uh, but, but you also think, I'm not quite sure where I'm going. Um, I wonder what will happen. And actually, I rather fell into Handel without realising it. My musical interests were not focused that way in the first place. In fact, when I started as a um, musician, teacher in Oxfordshire, um, I got myself a reader's ticket, the British Museum, as it was then, and a uh, colleague of mine who was actually an, an art history person said, oh yes, you want to have a look at the Handel autographs? And I thought, well, that's not very interesting. I little knew what was going to happen. Um, but it, I really came to it through um, performance. And th- one of the reasons that prompted me onto this track is that the, a key moment in this was a concert in 1973. In a way, this is something where it all started. Um, this was a, um, as it were, second item from a performance of um, Messiah that I'd done two years earlier. That I got interested in Messiah because there are several variant forms of the music. Handel performed it many times, different singers rewrote various bits of music. You had choices. And I got interested in looking at the music associated with Messiah. And in the course of that, I found um, a piece of music which clearly wasn't for Messiah, but was related to it. How beautiful are are the feet, one of the movements in Messiah. And to sort of cut a long story short... I worked out that this was actually not part of Messiah, but was for an anthem, um, a church anthem. And in 1973, um, there we are, there's the first performance since 1749, because what I did was to find the bits and reassemble the anthem. Um, It started, really, when I went to the Handel autographs and I found this page, um, It's the beginning of something for orchestra and alto solo. Where were the clues? Remember, I didn't know when I started what this was. It had the same words as a movement from um, Messiah, um, but it didn't seem to fit. Um, And there there were two or three clues, alto one, alto two um, soloists there, the name of Mr. Bailey. Where do you find Mr. Bailey? That sent me into a whole other area, which was to find out about 18th century singers. Where do I find Mr. Bailey, who's an alto? And what I found at that stage was actually there were two sort of cultures in London among singers. There was the theatre culture and the church culture. Professional singers were either in the theatre or, if they were in the top rank, they sang in the Chapel Royal Westminster Abbey, St Paul's. The times of the services were arranged so they could rush from one to another. And they made up this sort of life of singing in more than one place every Sunday morning and uh, afternoon. And so um, I started then to get interested in the people and the dates at what time. And this put me into the 1740s. Um, Bailey um, actually started as a singer 
uh, and then, as it were, and became a, um, a clergyman and was actually one of the top clergy in the Chapel Royal uh, by the time one gets into the 1770s, 1780s. Uh, and I sort of went from that to looking at the other sort of thing that one would now look at, which is the newspapers. And the 18th century newspapers are something really very special. In a fit of absent-mindedness in the 1690s, Parliament did not um, renew the um, Censorship Act. And that was the start of the newspapers as we have them now. And what actually there happened... Of course, we think of it in terms of essays and uh, writings about um, politics and the issues of the day. But at the same time, it means that in the 18th century, in the first part of the 18th century, we know more about music in London than any other capital in Europe because every concert, every theatre advertised in in the papers. We know from night to night what you could go and see in London. Concerts, plays, theatres, operas. Um, And here was the clue that I'd got, really, from the newspaper, uh, what we now know as the Foundling Hospital. Um, Mr. Handel having offered his assistance this concert of vocal and instrumental music. And uh, this is 1749, the piece of Aylar Chapelle, Ending the War. uh, And that, of course, the big event was the Royal Fireworks the Royal um, Fireworks music, and actually part one of the concert, it says, part one of the concert, the music for, uh, for the late Royal Fireworks and the anthem on the piece. There was the clue. The two um, fitting there and then other things that, that followed. But then it got complicated because I started actually looking on at the newspapers and you find other things then coming from it. The second advert... Um, tells you that the same thing's happening, but they've changed the date. Some persons of high um, distinction, they've changed the date. It was the Prince of Wales uh, who actually went to the concert. And so um, when you go from there to other things, I then thought, well, how can I be sure that the anthem on the piece was this thing that I'd found the manuscript of? Um, And the answer was then to look at things like the equivalent of an 18th century concert program. And lo and behold, here, actually it does say there, um, down at the bottom, does it? Uh, Yes, Mr. Thompson, here we are down here, Mr. Thompson having printed the words of this um, performance, books may be had at uh, the same place where you get the tickets. So the thing to do was to find one of these books, and here was the program for the concert, Um, it had the wrong date on because it was printed before they changed the date. Um, But lo and behold, um, when you turn the page and look at part one, there the music for the fireworks and there's the anthem on the occasion of the piece. Everything sort of got added up. Um, And I was able to reconstruct the anthem. The copy of the music that that was uh, originally used was lost in a fire almost certainly, in 1840. Um, But there are enough clues around because Handel recomposed and reused and adapted music from other works. And so it was a a question of chasing through other things to find where the music came from. And if if I just um, um, 
turn the page. Well, f- first of all, just before I do, um, the newspapers also give you the clue of when it was actually first performed here. Tuesday being the day appointed for a general thanksgiving, His Majesty and the Royal Family went to the Chapel Royal, where a new te- a day and anthem, the music whereof was composed by Mr. Handel, was performed. That's the date, that's the occasion, that's when it happened. Um, so that sort of tied that up nicely. But the actual reconstruction of... Well, um, just to pass on, that went from there into my first actual music publication. Here was the music that followed on the life. Um, didn't come out for some years afterwards, um, after I'd done it, but um, that was the first uh, music publication uh, that I ever did, and it was based on that. Um, but the sort of thing that you found was, in the first part of the autograph, there was the complete music. But you would turn the page, and what you have here is just trumpet and drum parts, without the rest of the music. And it says at the top, glory and worship are before him. This was trumpet and drum to be added to some other music that Handel had written earlier. And that took me chasing through Handel's church music. We know famously Zadok the Priest, one or two other pieces by Handel. But there's actually areas of the church music that were not very well known. Um, And I sort of went back through the Handel autographs, through the music... Um, And lo and behold, I did find a piece where glory and worship, I've actually got the right words there, and it's without trumpets and drums. What he did was to take this movement, which he'd written 20 years earlier, and to add the trumpets to them. I'm going to have just a second now of music pause, if I could find the place on this bit of technology. You'll have to just bear with me for a moment, because... Um, this, there is no um, recording of this. Uh, this is a um, performance I did in 2005 in Albuquerque, USA. Um, and, so, uh, and it was then transferred onto here, and they put all the track numbers in the wrong places in the usual way. Um, so there's going to be just a short pause while I find the right place on here. Thank you. 
well, you may have thought that was the end, but that, that was only the start. Because when I got to this, of course, there were the names of singers down here, and I realised that this piece, there was no certainty of when this was performed, when it was composed, what occasion. And I said, I got interested in the singers. That gave me a date range of about 20 years. So I then, in a lunatic manner, got interested in manuscript paper. The stave ruling, the watermarks. And I tried to get a match. I looked through Handel's autographs. Ah, oh, here's an e easy thing to say. Looking for these things. Um, and I got terribly good on 18th century paper. Um, I met an American scholar who had a similar interest. Um, the long and the short of it is there are 8,000 pages of Handel's autograph music. And um, it resulted in the book, the catalogue of Handel's autographs, where we identified the stave ruling and the watermarks in every page. And then we, of course, came to how do you do this? How do you do the watermarks? Photography had been tried... Doden chronology was talked about, which was terribly technical, but apparently had a sort of um, um, cancer risk, and so people didn't do it. Or you could send it off to the lab for two months and then get it back. But we wanted to work fast. We got all these pages, and so we went into good old cottage copying, hand copying of watermarks, but you needed something to do it with. And I toured the world with this bit of kit which is a flat light, uh, which you put underneath the page and put the um, tracing paper on the top with something in the way, and we went and traced. And then you could transfer it to the next page and see if it was the same watermark. Um, this was fine, except that, of course, if you go to America, it's a different voltage. And so I had the travelling kit, um, which had... Um, an American shaver's converter for the voltage. Um, and when you went to Manchester Central Library, they were still on three-pin 50-amp <laughs> plugs. And, of course, in the, that was in the days when you could... I went round the world with this, with wires sticking out the top. And, of course, occasionally one was stopped at the airport for some reason. I can't think why. Um, but, I mean, that took me into other areas, and actually the document thing, what I've done really is to follow up music, the actual sound of the music, the things about the physical music, and the um, document evidence about Handel and his life and his music in parallel and bring them all into one place. And I think that's probably, um, you know, if I look back on it, um, one has to be sort of sort of a little bit funny, there are times I think I've done too many words, not enough notes recently, you know, um, trying to keep all these things, but they do um, interact and have certainly told me things I couldn't even have um, thought about in 1973. Thank you. <laughs> Good afternoon. Sorry, I was just waiting for... For all the kids to be uh, packed up, but I think that'll take a while. Thank you so much, Donald. That was absolutely fascinating. And uh, after that heavenly music, I mean, I thought that was absolutely wonderful. I now bring you back to uh, Milton Keynes with a bit of a bump. Um, so my name is Edith Prack. I'm the Director of Development. And this um, afternoon has been organised by my team. Um, and 
on your, uh, in your packs you have uh, evaluation forms. Um, we are really, really interested in your feedback, so please fill them out. We changed something. This is about the sixth or the eighth time we have run an afternoon like this. We change something every single time due to the feedback we get. Um, so please, um, I would like you to think about very carefully what you think we could improve on. Um, also, another thing I wanted to say was some of you have wondered why you have been invited this afternoon. Uh, that is because you're all B students, uh, if I'm correct. Um, and what we're trying to do is go through all the students year by year. Um, and, but, of course, sometimes we're so heavily oversubscribed that yet one year spills out in the next year. So it might be some B students have brought along a guest who's a C student. If you haven't been invited by the middle of next year, that is because we're still working through that particular backlog. Um, so thank you uh, very much for coming. My uh, role at the university is twofold. On the one hand, I, um, from my unit, we run the international development programs, which you might have heard of, TESA, HEAT. Um, I'm about to show a short film in which some of this is featured. And the other role that my team does is fundraising. So we raise money for the university to do the things that otherwise this university couldn't do. Student fees pay for, and as you probably are aware, all our students have to now uh, pay entirely for their uh, own courses. Uh, they can do usually access a loan, but student fees only go so far in some of the things we'd like to do. Uh, and f quite a number of the things we do with philanthropic support is to increase access. Um, I think what I've heard already, and the film I'm about to show will also show you that, is in one, in, um, if I could describe the OU in three words, I would say we change lives. Um, and that is what the support from some of you already in the, um, uh, who are already donors to the university has done for us. Uh, very recently I attended a, a graduation ceremony at the Barbican and one of the students walked across the stage, clasped the vice chancellor's hand and said, thank you, you have changed my life. And that story repeats itself over and over again. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that we've also changed your life. Uh, I don't have an OU degree. Uh, I'm sorry to say, it seems like a lot of hard work to me, but working here has changed my life. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a great institution, and we're about to show you a film that shows you some of our students and how we've helped to change their lives. Um, so, oh. I think I need a little bit of instruction. Um, the film that I'm about to show you is, uh, was made for, uh, to encourage people to leave money to the Open University in their will. Um, we have about 1,000 former OU students who have done so, who have told us they've done that so far. But the film is also, we uh, found very good for um, explaining how the OU has changed uh, people's lives. These are only four stories, but these stories repeat themselves over and over again.
process it takes me years with kidney problems and I've never been so scared in my life the moment of the operation. It was just beyond me to continue my employment, the physical effort I needed to put in. So I got made redundant and then the next step was to find a new career and that's where I came across the Open University. The Open University coming to the community and it wasn't for them coming to engage with me. I don't think I would make a step forward to engage with them. I didn't think I was clever enough to, to make a step up. I've done the starting the maths. These are open courses of like introductory to anyone who hasn't ever studied at this level before. And it's to gauge whether you think you continue to go any further. This is my certificate presented to me by the Open University in recognition of successfully completing starting the maths course. My dad's really confident now compared to what he used to be. He's completely changed my through the Open University helping me. He's good at maths, really good at maths. to 
measurements and data handling. When I look through Tesla, there are so many interesting ways to teach pupils. There are some things that I have never tried out myself before, and then I integrated in in the preparation of my lesson notes and also in the delivery of my lessons. I love coming to school. Every day when I'm coming, it's a joyful day for me. Tessa is always ready to deliver. Before Tessa, we had nothing else. Tessa is totally people or child-centered, where every child will have to take part. And then write the number. The Tessa materials have helped the roots. The children, they are very good, especially when it comes to their reading. Yes, and they exhibit a lot of confidence. Thank you. 
Well, those are incredible people. I've only met one of them, the woman who is in Ghana, and I visited that school. Uh, it's an incredible feeling to go to Ghana and see people talk about the Open University with just the same affection that you get from our students in the UK. Um, this is an incredible institution, and we've been here for 40 years, partly because you have, um, at the very beginning, put your, your faith in us. And so we are very grateful for everyone who studied with us in the first decade of the university and who made this um, a success. Um, if you're interested in supporting the OU, uh, please talk to a member of uh, our staff who are all around with the blue T-shirts. Uh, we've uh, this time put a donation uh, envelope in, in amongst your materials at the request of some of our uh, pioneer students who came back uh, at previous occasions um, and if you're interested in more, in more in legacy giving there's a booklet in your bag as well um, I would now um, before I close just thank you for joining us this afternoon we hope uh, that you'll learn more and go back as enthused as uh, you came uh, and we hope you'll um, uh, study with us more. You can now do so for free via FutureLearn, OpenLearn and all the things that Andrew is going to talk about uh, because it's now my pleasure to introduce uh, Andrew. No, it isn't because I'm going to give people a quick break. Sorry, Andrew's pointing at me. That I, if you, if, uh, so this is the moment when we have just five minutes interval uh, for anyone uh, wanting a quick break, and then I'll introduce Andrew. Thank you. Um, so I would like to introduce Andrew Law, who was the very first person who came to see me when I worked at the OU. Um, and um, he is the director of the Open Media Unit, and he's going to talk about BBC and OU programs, correct? Um, yeah. So Andrew is interested in how rich and interactive open media can help people start their journey into learning. Before joining the OU, Andrew worked for the BBC, so that was handy. Uh, for 10 years, he made television programs with the OU, including some of the more popular strands of science output, such as rough science. Um, for the last eight years before joining the OU, he was head of e-learning at BBC Worldwide, and he led teams producing a wide range of uh, broadband and mobile, including products for the Department for International Development and the World Bank, uh, literacy materials for asylum seekers in the UK, and teacher training materials for UK head teachers and executive training for Oracle. Andrew joined the OU in April 2009 and is now helping to coordinate, I think you're actually coordinating, <laughs> and developing the OU Open Media Strategy. This includes national and international television and radio broadcasts with the BBC, as well as YouTube, iTunes U, and Open Learn activities. Andrew, the floor is yours. Thank you, Edith.
So can you hear me? Is that okay at the back? Too loud? Too, it's okay? Yes, okay. So um, relative new boy, really. Um, four years. A lot of people have done much longer than I have. Um, um, and so what is open media? Actually, Edith described almost everything I need to say here. I'm going to show you some examples. But it's, it's everything that the university gives away for free into the public domain. And one of the things I'll do at the end is you don't have to keep notes in case you are. Everything that I talk about today is free. It's freely publicly available. There's a list of connections that you can make here if you have Internet access. And they're all in a pile over there. So if you go away and you want access to our 10,000 hours of free public content, Please take one of these away with you. Um, so Into the Great Wide Open is something that I think the university's been doing really since day one. And as you are pioneers, some of you may remember this. Um, uh, this was the first broadcast. So I don't know, did anybody see it? Is there anybody here that would remember seeing that? that we, oh, yeah, great. Okay, fantastic news. So first BBC broadcast, and obviously at the time, and it says in our charter, it's the responsibility of the Open University not just to engage with its students but to engage with the broader public. We are an institution whose role is to infect and engage the broad community, the entire nation, with the opportunity to learn. And you don't have to become a student to do that. And why the BBC joined up in this venture was because they also believe that as well and are still part of this relationship. Fundamentally, it is our job to do that. And uh, that's changed a lot. I'm really hoping these videos work. Otherwise, it will be a very short session. Um, you've all had your lunch? Um, so that was the first program. This is a program from a couple of years ago. Okay, I'm going to show you some uh, by jumping through in this way. Um, this is a, a lady uh, cooking scorpions. Um, and these scorpions are being fried. And she's telling us that actually, on average, most people are eating insects every day as part of their daily bread because it's usually found that it's legally allowed that you can put up to, and I'm going to forget the numbers here because she usually says it, something like 350 bits of insect in every cup of cocoa that you drink. Um, a lot of aphids in the average piece of broccoli. And what this was was part of a program. Uh, I'm really going to try just one more time.
Oh, it's really going to mess around. And actually, that's the last video I'm going to show now because I'm not going to rely on it to work any further. Um, so that's from a series called Bang Goes the Theory. It's BBC One. It's not 2 o'clock in the morning with quantum mechanicists talking in Kipper ties in black and white. This is mainstream television viewing along with Frozen Planet. Wonder of Dogs, anybody seen Wonder of Dogs in the last two or three weeks from the Open University and the BBC? Uh, Harry Biker's Vacation, Harry Baker's Vacation, whatever it is. Uh, Pain, Puss and Poison. Um, all programs now produced with the BBC on television, mainstream viewing, not buried away in the schedules, actually not aimed at our students. These are not teaching programs. We make content for our students in a different way. This is to engage the public in what is the open university, what is it we, broadly speaking, teach, what subjects do we cover, and most importantly, why don't you come in and have a look? Because for every program that we make on television every year, and we make about 25 series with the BBC each year, that's seen by about 300, that's seen 350 million times last year inside the UK. That's obviously larger than the UK population, so it means lots of people are watching more than one program. In fact, about half the adult population watched at least one of the, one of the programs from Frozen Planet. So an enormous uptake of interest and engagement. They're very popular. We get very, very positive responses. But importantly, we won't make a program like that program about food unless the BBC gives us something else. A, they've got to give us the programme and we give that to our students. We get lots of other assets from them. But they have to make a call to action at the end of the programme. So if you've watched The Wonder of Dogs, you should see, and I watched last night the guy doing Pain, Puss and Poison, he says at the end of the programme, if you'd like to know more about this, follow the links to the Open University. So last year, 600,000 people followed those links to the Open University. And everybody arrives here, which is our new site called OpenLearn, or newly configured site called OpenLearn. And if you came in from something like a program about food, what you can do on that site is explore your interests further. So uh, I'm not going to chop up insects. I'm hoping at least the Internet's working today. Um, but this is the website. Everything here is free. You can, if you have Internet access or you can get somebody to give you Internet access... 10,000 hours of content are currently sitting on this system, and we add a few hundred hours at least every year more to this. So one example is if you want to explore food, um, so this is a plate. I can put food on it. This is a graph telling me the chemical elements that might be available in food, and this is a piece of farmland where if I pick up, for instance, a piece of beef and put it onto my plate, I can discover actually... You know, having a, had a relatively light-touch television moment, I can now begin to actually explore some fairly significant and interesting details about this. So, um, does anybody have any choices about what other food... Uh, I must admit the animals are more interesting because they make noises. So this is quite a sophisticated simulation. It's actually been sitting on the Internet site for about six years. Um, it's used frequently by people. Um, you can scroll around and find out more about what's just gone onto your plate. You can inspect these things in terms of their impact on the environment as well as their chemical features. So this site, OpenLearn, let's just take you back to the top, OpenLearn is the home of everything that we do that's free and public. 
Um, it's actually built on the same technology that we give to our students when they sign in and register with us. And that gives us some other advantages, which I'll come back to later. It's not all about food. All of the subjects of the university are covered here. A lot of material. And if you don't know what to look for next, the editor will regularly... So here's our dog stuff. Uh, here's our pain... Oops. Here's our pain, pus, and poison stuff. Um, and at the bottom, we, are, we make other recommendations that you can go and look for, other stuff. And we also see what other people are liking at the stage and seeing if your friends might recommend something to you. So you can go and explore, you know, maybe for 10 minutes, for 20 minutes, that subject in a little bit more detail. Um, but what's also important is actually you can become a student. Now you can become a student in a virtual sense. Um, we're letting you in for a few hours to be a student. We can't give you a tutor. We can't, at the moment, mark your exams. But we can give you access to one of our units. In this case, uh, if I just reveal the summary, this is a 15-hour study unit. Some of you will remember study units. It's the equivalent of a single unit. It's free and publicly available. You will remember you did much more than 15 hours' work for any one module, we're only releasing one study unit per module, but we make sure it's a meaningful one, it's truly engaging, it's, it, you know, it's a real learning experience, and you can work through this study unit. Um, the learning outcomes, there'll be interactive activities in there, there might be quizzes in there, a range of activities in there. And you might be wondering, why on earth are they all doing this? Well, interestingly, we let people comment on our pages. So anybody that's got any views, likes, dislikes, I don't know if you can read this, but this is somebody that came in and browsed the site. And what they've said is they've started looking at this unit and then they've registered with the Open University to take the course. I didn't write this. I discovered it half an hour ago um, when I was preparing this presentation. I, I did prepare it a little bit more than that beforehand. But we are now getting 10% of the people that visit this site are making an inquiry about whether they could become an Open University student. Now, remember, I said 600,000 people came from the BBC. 10% of those make an inquiry or at least explore the possibility of becoming a student with the Open University. But the traffic from the BBC is only part of the story. Five and a half million people visited this site from elsewhere last year. So the BBC causes just above half a million of our traffic, but ten times that traffic comes from Google. People just looking for content. And being in the big, wide open means those people will discover us. And all we have to do is give a little bit of our assets away and they come looking. Now, they could become students and many of them don't. The vast majority of those five and a half million people have not obviously become OU students, but that some of them do. More than enough to pay them for the cost of this site. But for the other five and a half million people, we are giving a free, valuable public service, a real social mission to the world of free education that's available here. Okay. So, do go and have a look at the site. The, all of the URLs, the addresses of these sites are here. However, that's part of the story. As I say, obviously, we're interested in people not just looking at the units, but then phoning us up or clicking through and making an inquiry. If they don't, that's fine. We're not going to stop doing this if we don't generate students. However, we do generate students through this process. 
and, it, and the value of those students' registrations more than pays for the cost of this site. I, I'm also happy to stand up in front of existing students and say, I'm taking about 1.5% of your fee and spending it on the public engagement activity here. And so far, I've not had a single student come back and say, I find that objectionable. I think they recognize that as the university engaging with our broader culture and contributing back to the society that gave birth to it, it's right that we share some of our assets without damaging our business. I think a lot of people ask, well, hang on a minute, won't people just do stuff for free and then not become a university student? To be frank, if you want a qualification, you're going to become a student. You cannot get a qualification by doing this at the moment. Um, you cannot get a qualification by doing this. So if they want to come in and study, they'll come in because they want tutors, they want that pastoral support, they want the qualification, they want the guidance. We cannot offer that in the public domain. Okay. Um, however, this is just one of the channels that we now run. So we have the BBC output up here. And we also move some of our content onto some of these other channels. It's half past, which is when I was supposed to start the talking. So I've, we've got 20 minutes. I'll keep going for a little bit, but I'm, I'm really happy to take questions, if needs be, during this. But um, I'm going to move on for a minute. Um, if, 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 um, if anybody's a bit... Well, this is, a, this is an approved YouTube video from the English faculty. Let's just say that. Um, is anybody a YouTube viewer on a consistent, regular basis? Yeah. Of course you are. There are some here. And I'm hoping after today there'll be more. But in addition to capturing an audience on television and capturing an audience on our website, what we've realized is that there are other channels that we can put our content onto that we don't have to manage. I, I, my team has to look after that OpenLearn website. We don't have to look after YouTube. Somebody else will look after YouTube for us. It's called Google. And what's important about YouTube is that it is the second, most lar the second largest search engine used in the world. So putting video on YouTube, if you want attention, is a very good idea. Um, however, we have done things on YouTube that some of you may find shocking. So I'm just going to take my career in my hands and hope, A, that it plays, because I'm really not going to read this script out to you. But it's only short. It's only 60 seconds long. Okay, I'm going to do something better than that. I'm going to not rely on PowerPoint, and I'm going to go to our YouTube channel, because I did say it exists, and rather than do it through YouTube, I'm going to just... So this is our YouTube channel. We've got about um, maybe 200 hours of video content here. Um, you can... Um, well, let's choose one, anyone. Certainly this one will be less naughty than the one I was about to show you. <laughs> Um, uh, I probably don't have time to go off and find it. So let me, let me, uh, let me just see if we can make this one play. Gaia and the killer asteroids. If Holly would have thought of one thing, if there's an asteroid cracking into the Earth, it's not exactly Because to see them from the Earth, you'd have to look directly towards the sun. 
Okay, so I, I don't know if any of you remember watching TV programs or anything like that as part of your study. If it, did anybody do science or astronomy here? I, I, I doubt if you would have found anything like that in the unit. Um, I'm not certain it would have helped a lot in terms of the teaching and learning, although many of the things that I'm showing to you, as well as being part of the public engagement strategy, are also then being reabsorbed back into units. So the history of mathematics that we've just made, again, that's David Mitchell, the guy from Mitchell and Webb, the guy on Have I Got News For You. It's a comedy scriptwriter. I don't think for 40 years that the university ever hired a comedy scriptwriter to work with its academics. I'm not certain that's something that would have been naturally part of course production, but it's definitely part of public engagement, and and we see no harm in that coming back and kind of influencing the way that we teach our students as well. I don't see why you shouldn't laugh while studying at the same time, and that is a real possibility now. Now, something like that costs about um, a, a 50th of the price of a television program. But the other key thing about that is that it can be seen anywhere in the world by anybody, and a TV program can be seen for 30 minutes only in the UK, and then it's gone forever. So these are very, very powerful opportunities to engage a much wider world in permanent state, and that video, or videos like it, did that say, actually, that's only had 8,000 views. Uh, the one I was going to show you has had quarter of a million. Um, I've made a video up there that's been seen by half a million people. So it's possible for us to reach the similar scale of television production now through YouTube, and what's also critically important about that, and I don't scroll down on this page because I have no idea what's written on the bottom of it. Sometimes it's quite rude. Sometimes it's... Should we have a look? <laughs> oh, goodness. What's going to be there? Oh, interesting series. Few. Uh, David Mitchell doing a thumbs up. Um, and then somebody asking a quite reasonably complicated question about the Gaia... Satellite. So not just mucking around. Genuinely asking a question. I must admit, um, if I go any further, I'm slightly worried about what else we might find. Okay. Thank you, Guy. I love these animations, psychoasteroids. Okay. What it does tell us, and that was a bit of a risk, that wasn't a setup, is that we're getting language used on YouTube about us, which 10 years ago we would have died for. People saying the Open University is cool. And, and younger people talking about us as a place that they want to be associated with. And that's critically important for us as we look forward into the next 40 or 50 years, that young people see us, and they increasingly do see us, as a destination that's cool and valuable and important. Okay, so... Oh, now it wants to play. English of Science, or how to speak. It's slightly rude. Before the 17th century, scientists weren't really recognised, possibly because lab coats didn't get to on. But suddenly Britain was full of physicists. 
There was Robert Hooke, Robert Boyle, and even some people not called Robert, like Isaac Newton. The Royal Society was formed out of the Invisible College after they put it down somewhere and couldn't find it again. At first they worked in Latin. After sitting through Newton's story about the common falling to the terror from the arbor for the umpteenth time, the bright sparks realized they all spoke English and they could transform our understanding of the universe much quicker by talking in their own language. But science was discovering things faster than they could name them. Words like acid, gravity, electricity, and pendulum had to be invented just to stop their meetings turning into an endless game of charades. Like teenage boys, the scientists suddenly became aware of the human body, coining new words like cardiac and tonsil, ovary and sternum. And the invention of penis and vagina made sex education classes a bit easier to follow, though Twitter was still a source of confusion. Okay, slight risky one. Um, actually couldn't put that on television, certainly not at 7 o'clock at night against um, the wonder of dogs. Um, but, re- but we are described as cool and unique and, and completely not understood as kippertized, black and white, strange world of the 60s and 70s by a new generation that's discovering us on this channel and thinking about learning for the first time. They're not talking the language of our academics. They're not going to listen to the language of our academics. They're talking their own language, and we're trying to get closer to them because there's absolutely nothing that should stop them from coming in just because they don't yet use the language of academe. We want to make sure that we're using language which is their language and closer to their interests to draw them in. Okay, so... In addition, and I think probably then I should finish, I said that that you can't earn qualifications and you can't um, get the same things that our students get. One of the costs of running an open university course is the construction of its content. But my suspicion is you'll remember that actually what was also critical was the tutor and and the support and the advice and the exam and the attention paid to the work that you did. Now, we have... In total, across iTunes, YouTube, and OpenLearn, these channels that we have, we have 11 million people a year visiting us. That's a lot of people. There is no way that we can adjust the level of care that we've got to our existing students that pay us a fee to look after those 11 million people. But what we are interested in is how the technology might be able to do that. So I said we have built this system, OpenLearn, on the same technology that we give to our students. And there are some things we can do there that will add to it being not just the opportunity to look at some content. But this system, if you choose to register with it, um, you can sign in. If you sign in, um, it will track your progress. It will monitor what you've done. You don't have to. It's not. I mean, we make clear this is what it's going to do. Most of our students now studying with us, if they're doing a course online with us, will be set questions in the course that are online. And the the system will will mark their responses to those questions. The same system now sits outside. So some of the questions that we ask our students, a version of them, can be released into the public domain as well. And we can set tests for the public and give feedback and marks to them. Now, that means that we can begin not just to say, have a look at some content, but really have a look at some content and and gauge whether you're able to learn at the level that an OU student might be able to learn. No tutor, no marking, no degrees. But what we can do, and this is my page, um, 
once you log in, you get your own page on OpenLearn. As you can see, I'm, I'm currently looking at, um, what am I looking at? Comparing stars and um, designing space for dementia care. Oops. Um, because it can track, and I'm, and I'm not very far through them, as you can probably see, 11% through that one, and is it 14% through that one? Over time, it won't just measure how many pages I've looked at, but also which of the quizzes and the assessment activities that I've done. And so we can begin to issue, oops, these things here in the middle, which will be badges. They're little electronic markers of your progress. Now, that's kind of nice on your site. It shows up that you've made some progress. But what's critically important about those badges is that they can also be displayed to the outside world, if you choose them to be. You don't have to. So it will show, has anybody got a, a Facebook account or a LinkedIn account? Anyone, anybody? Some? Yes, a few. Okay. So on Facebook, this system will, by the, end of by the middle of next summer, talk to Facebook and show, if you choose it to, what badges you have earned by studying for free with the Open University through a series of modules. And that badge you can show to your mates because they'll, be they'll be looking at your Facebook page. There is no better form of recommendation than your mates saying that you've, seeing that you've done something than, to be frank, our marketing department telling you you should be doing it. Our marketing department is very effective, by the way. It does have a very powerful way of making sure we're keeping to all of our targets. But if we can get our mates to recommend activity for us through Facebook and LinkedIn and what's called these social networks, that's a very, very powerful means of spreading the word of the Open University. So during next year, this badging system will be released across a series of modules and activities, and people will be able to show each other what they're learning. And importantly, we think, employers might start saying, do you know what? Getting five or six badges from free learning at the Open University might be quite a good thing to do in the National Health Service or the military or something like that. You don't have to register with the Open University to get your degree. That's still going to come at a significant cost and effort on behalf of the student. But here, we can issue markers of learning that aren't just, I looked at a website, but genuinely inspecting whether the person's done anything. I think for reasons of time, and the fact you've hardly had a chance to ask any questions, we've got 10 minutes left. And unless I try and go those, get those videos working again, does anybody have any questions, worries, concerns, terror? Um, no, not yes, okay. I don't, quite, I don't quite understand, in relation to the BBC programmes, the distinction between what is an open university BBC production and what may be a generic feature, say, oh, I don't know, Tudor history or yeah. something like that. Yeah. And it seems to me that um, maybe it's been considered and turned down for some reason, but why shouldn't every programme which is, so to speak, about something in the BBC have a little tag at the end of it which mentions open learn? It would save you a lot of money in making other programs. It would get more people um, possibly interested. I know that's has the problem of not making programs yourself, possibly, but you get a lot of... Well, well, bear in mind, we don't make any programs. We yeah. pay the BBC to be present on the end of their programs. Now, we also give them an academic to work with, and we have a call to action at the end, and actually we get some other things. One of the things we get is we get a chance to go into the archive and take as much out of it as we can use for teaching our own students for free. 
So there's some other benefits which we haven't talked about today. But you're right. Why, why if Pain, Pus and Poison was on last night on BBC Four, but actually, trust me, I'm a doctor, was on BBC One or Two, I think, the hour before, the same guy was in it. Actually, it was a slightly gentler introduction to medicine than the Pain, Pus and Poison series on BBC Four. Why didn't the end of that program go, huh, there is a learning opportunity here, whether or not the Open University invested in this program? We can only afford to be involved in 25 we think the new Director General is open to the idea that we could have a conversation that says we are the largest provider of free public education, almost certainly in the English language in Europe. Why aren't we attached to every factual output and the news? Because actually, if you've got a news item about Syria and terrorism and intertribal conflict, we have units on that that teach it at degree level. Why doesn't the news journalists do that? Now, we have a unit here called KMI. Have KMI talked today? No? Anyway, in the Knowledge Media Institute, what they're looking at for us now um, is a mechanism that will read BBC web pages and work out the connection between a BBC web page and the Open University page. Because one of the reasons the BBC won't do what you've said is it would need a, need a team of 100 researchers to make the links. If we can get the machine to make the link between a news item on Syria and the fact that we have got really interesting units about the difference between Sunni and Shia Muslims, then actually the machine can make that link for us. And as long as the BBC trusts the machine to do it, they'll sew them together. So um, I've just told you commercially sensitive secrets that I shouldn't really have been talking about in public domain, but we are looking at how we can join this content to the BBC's content in a much, much more dynamic way without just getting the opportunity of, you know, in the end, 25 series a year. You think about how much factual output there is on the BBC. We could join with all of it. I, I absolutely agree. home experimental kits. We used to have a lot of fun with those. Um, how does the lessons learned from home experiments transmute into a more electronic university? So I, I think a good example of that, and actually, I don't know, it, it possibly is going to come up. Um, so I, I've talked to the, to the chemists and the physicists here and raised the question about when you've got a microscope in front of you, what are you really learning? Are you learning how to use the microscope? Or are you learning about the content of the slide, the biology that's on the slide? What's the most important thing? Is it the practice of placing the slide carefully? Or is it the mechanics of the microscope? Or is it the cellular structures that are in front of you? Now, to be frank, if it's the first of those, we should be handing out microscopes. And I think many of you, certainly that studied later, will have seen very cleverly designed microscopes that could go out in the, in the post. But I think you'll find now that we've got virtual microscopes. Now, this is a, not just a picture of a microscope, but the Open Science Lab has a working virtual microscope. I'm having failed on almost every other piece of technology this morning. I'm not going to go off and look at it. Um, but there is a lab in science now, a virtual lab in science, of mass spectrometers, of microscopes, of telescopes, including one with a live feed to a real telescope in Mallorca. Um, which allows the public to gain access to those tools and scientific devices to, to, well, play with them, to explore them. It is not going to teach good practice with actual physical microscopes as well as actual physical microscopes will, but sending one microscope out to one student versus sending a virtual microscope out 
to anybody in the world that has an internet point is a very, very powerfully different opportunity. And I think the opportunities that sit with virtualizing home experiment kits is an enormous gift the university could give to the world. I, 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 I should be careful about what I say. I would hope that doesn't mean that in the end nobody gets their hands on real physical things and the joy of it not working. Um, um, but um, we're talking about a million to one ratio of being able to serve people with that opportunity and also doing things you can't do with a real microscope. If you've got magnification of 1 to 1,000 to 10,000, a virtual microscope can go beyond that, and it can become X-ray, and it can become lots of other things all in the same device at the flick of a switch. So I think it's a very exciting domain that I suspect our next speaker may be at least touching on. I saw that program last night. Uh, about food degenerating uh, and it was very interesting and uh, I enjoyed it fully but the only question in my mind was this was all conducted in a temperature of 28 degrees C which I mean you don't, don't very often get that in a kitchen no in this country no. uh, and uh, I would have liked to have known what happens at a normal temperature or if you put things in a fridge, for instance. Yeah. Does the same thing happen, but over a longer distance of time? Yeah. Now, so, I mean, that could have been a mistake in the program, in which case our academics let us down, but I don't think they did. They will have known that what was being presented there was... You have some choices in your three minutes of TV fame time to make, and they may or may not have made a good choice. I thought it was rather alarmist. Um, and, and it may also be alarmist, but although I think it's fairly rare for the university to be engaged in something that we occasionally hit the press, climate change, something like that, around which there's some controversy, um, but I think on the whole, we have never had a sustained complaint against any of our programs um, with the BBC. This may be the first one. Um, and what would be really good is if we could have a virtual food experiment, a bit like the one I showed, that didn't just show the chemical makeup of, of food, but maybe showed how it decayed at different temperatures in different ways over time. Um, and you could play with that at your heart, until your heart is content. <laughs> a rather different topic. I'd like to ask you, I mean, with the students now paying £9,000 a year to go to French universities, are you... Not serious? here, by the way. They don't pay no, that no. here. No, no. My, my question is, are you seriously competing now for the 18, 19-year-old to come to you rather than pay £9,000 a year at one of the conventional universities? Are we seriously competing? To be frank, it is not our target. We, 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 I think we're realistic. I've got a, an 18, 19-year-old 19, 19 son, and he knows why he's going to university. He's going to get drunk. He's going to do things I don't want to know about. He's going to get away from home and me, and he's going to have a, a different life experience that, in a sense, that, that middle-class ticket can buy him, and I will pay some of those fees, if not all of them, for him. Um, I don't think for a lot of young people that ticket into degreeness is just about the qualification, although it increasingly is a concern. Am I going to be employable? Is this really worth it? And so we have seen a dramatic 
decrease in the average age of an open... Do you know what the average age... Actually, I asked this question, and I may not be able to answer it. Do you know what the average age of an open university student is at the moment? Because somebody told you this morning? Right, okay. So that's the average. That's the average, which means that we have people that are younger than 16-year-olds studying with us for degrees. We do, don't we? It's the fastest growing cohort, is my spin doctor to the left here telling me. Um, it is a very significant growth area for us. And I think, actually, particularly for people who are financially challenged or challenged in other ways, it's not just the money. It's the idea that you don't have to leave your community, the people that care for you or you have to care for by coming to the Open University, you can remain part of that community, actually, wherever you are in the world. If you're in the bush in Nairobi, or you're in, in Scunthorpe struggling to look after your mother with Alzheimer's, this is an opportunity for you as an 18-year-old that no other university can give you. And I think that's a very powerful thing. As it happens, I, hap I, have to be I do believe that the other universities will price themselves into a market that's heavily middle class, and there is nothing to suggest that our approach to the widening participation audiences and learners here has been impacted whatsoever by our fee structure. In fact, I think widening participation section of the audience, the people that we think might struggle paying the fees, has actually gone up higher than we thought it would. So, so that's a very political answer to a question of are we, are we intentionally targeting that audience? Actually, it would probably be a waste of marketing money to do it because a lot of that audience will just decide they want that middle-class ticket out into that specialized world. But a, lot, a growing group are beginning to doubt that that's the best thing for them and their families. So a week summer school can't compete then with a student life for an 18-, 19-year-old. I, I, uh, I only ever filmed summer school. I never, oh, I never yeah. got to experience it yeah. directly. And that which could appear on camera, I suspect is limited and yeah I think it, it, it kept some going school. I think the remainder of the year until the exams in, in November time so yeah no, to, you needed I think to be honest I, th I think we should align our fee structure with Glastonbury tickets and what actually you get <laughs> and actually you start the open university at Glastonbury uh, or at Reading I think that would be a killer marketing ploy is to say here's a community of people that love the same thing that you love and actually as part of your fee structure we're going to do a group deal we're going to give you a thousand tickets to Glastonbury as part of you know compared to the total fee it's not that much you start your experience learning with our community at Glastonbury I think we should do it tomorrow <laughs> you're going far <laughs> um, I've talked over I've gone over because I'm okay. oh sorry what is the current fee structure? The current fee structure, um, it's at the edges of my knowledge, but um, it's £5,000 a year, full-time equivalent. So if you were, and, that, and traditionally, all, most other universities, that's, that's in the eight to £9,000 region. Um, so we are um, about as low as you can go. Um, and we cover our costs. We are not going to sink by doing that. So we are comfortable with our fee structure. Um, so £5,000 a year, if you study full-time, and bear in mind most people are not. And you'll only pay that back if you earn money, and you're in work, um, and you're alive, um, because a lot of older people will study because they know they won't, in the end, have to pay back all their fees, and you stay in the country. <laughs> um, so there are, there are 
there are real advantages, and, and I think the thing that our Vice-Chancellor did for us two or three years ago was to get the government to recognize part-time learning deserves loans as much as any other form of learning. And, and I think he played a critical role in making that happen. He wasn't the only person that was arguing for it. I think we would be having a very difficult time now if that wasn't the case. But I think people are beginning to realize that actually alone, you know, my son's first going, oh, £9,000, and then he's going, oh, but hang on a minute, it's actually mm, £15 a week if I'm fully employed. And that's really nothing to worry about because he spends that on all sorts of rubbish. <laughs> I'm really aware that we're, we're, I don't want to avoid any other questions. I can't avoid more finance questions, but um, one, Edith, advise me. I'm aware that uh, Eileen... Okay. Can you make it an easy one? No. I, I work with a lot of disabled people. Yeah. What, what we've had uh, uh, with the web-based yeah. learning yeah. is wonderful. Yeah. But there was one group who have particular difficulty yeah. accessing the web, and that's yeah. blind people. Yes. Can you tell me what, is go uh, what you're doing to assist in that field, please. Okay, so we've just surveyed OpenLearn, and, um, and IET, the Institute of Educational Technology, works very carefully with us, breathing down our necks to check that it's as accessible as it should be. It's not. And actually, we need to fix that this year. However, um, we have, on average, declared by our users 28% disabled students coming to OpenLearn. That is massively high compared to the rest of the web sector and to the rest of the world. That is a disproportionately high number of people declaring a disability. So we try and make sure that the web pages are screen readable through JAWS and, and things like that. We try and make sure for people with auditory issues, we provide transcripts of everything, not everything. The, thing, the, the food thing that I was playing with becomes very difficult from a visual point of view, from a physical point of view for people with motor disabilities. We are getting better at that, but I have to put my hands up. We are not great at it, but it is on my objective list this year to get better. Great. Is that okay yeah. for now? So if you were interested in any of that 10,000 hours of content, and believe me, this is not a sales pitch. It's free. I just like to see it used. There's a list of um, there's a list of places to find it, including free ebooks. Um, we've got a, about 500 ebooks you can just take um, on Kindle, probably, uh, and other places. And there's more to come. Okay, thank you. So, big thank you to Andrew. Uh, big thank you to Andrew, our director of Open Media, but soon to be our director of marketing. See him at Glastonbury next year. <laughs> um, uh, many things have changed, but the OU's heart is still beating in the same place. Um, I wish you safe travels, and thank you very much again for coming. <laughs>